Hi, and welcome to our live event with Dr. Deb Kennedy, founder of the Food Coach Academy and the lead author of the Culinary Medicine Textbook. My name is Dan Merrick. I'm the director of plant-based culinary for Ruby. I want to introduce Dr. Deborah Kennedy, our guest today, who um, is, like I had said before, the founder of the Food Coach Academy and the author of the Culinary Medicine Textbook. And one of the other exciting things that we're working on with Ruby is an entire academy specifically written by Deb Kennedy on this as well. So um, Deborah, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your um, background um, just to, to tell the audience of who you are. Sure, thanks and welcome. Thanks for welcoming me to your platform. Um, my name is Dr. Deb and I am a lover of food in all aspects. I, my, my goal is to help everybody learn how to cook in a way that supports their health. So I have a PhD in nutrition from Tufts University. I've been cooking since the age of four. I was a sous chef out in Banff and in Montreal. So I understand food from multiple levels. And on a personal note, in my 20s, in my doctoral program, I was given two weeks to live from a cancer. And so I was given a crash course into what foods does one eat when one's life is at stake. Um, and the goal is to not get to that point and to really choose nourishment any time that you can. And uh, as Dan said, I've partnered with Ruby, a really exciting Food Coach Academy is coming your way soon. And uh, two kids, and I live in Moran. That's fantastic. Well, um, we're going to start off with some of our questions here, but I also just wanted to give a little bit of a glimpse into what we're working with for the Food Coach Academy. So um, one of the things that people might not know about is the books that you've actually written on the culinary medicine textbook. So can you give us a little bit of background on those books on the culinary medicine textbooks to start and then how that really started developing into the academy? Because they really do go really hand in hand and it's a, it's a wonderful series of books um, if you're out there, you should definitely just look up on Dr. Deborah Kennedy's website, which Patrick will link here for us. So you can definitely look at those as well to get some insight into them. But Deborah, I'd love your insight on the books. Sure. So this field of culinary medicine is, an, is a new-ish field of medicine and science. And um, what I was involved in many years ago was this best practices looking at what curricula existed with um, an initiative called the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative with the Culinary Institute of America and Harvard. And what we found was that there were no curricula that were based on what's called competencies. So that means if someone is told to eat more fruits or vegetables, what does that mean they need to learn to do in the kitchen and at the store? So what I did was I brought together a team of chefs, about a dozen chefs and over 40 nutrition scientists from Europe, Canada and the US. And over a three year period, we together culled through over 2,500 references and the nutritionists would say, okay, uh, this is what is required uh, from a health standpoint. And then I boot it over to my chefs and I go chefs. Okay. If someone needs to eat more vegetables, what does that mean they need to learn to do in the kitchen? And so we have a whole list of what are called culinary competencies. So how to steam vegetables, how to roast vegetables. Um, also there's this really big principle that everything is built on, which is taste and flavor. 
we have a preview of, and I call it a muse-bouche, for the taste and flavor class in September to give you a little taste of what it's going to be like. So these textbooks are, there's the basics, which really goes into everything from what is the most satiating? What makes you feel the fullest at a meal and between meals so that you can, if you're wanting to gain weight or lose weight, you know what to do in that situation. Also, the science around taste and flavor, which is wild, like everything from the color and shape of your plate to the music that's playing around you or the sounds around you affect your ability to taste different types of flavors. And cooking and bioavailability, how do you cook to gain the most nutrients and the least amount of toxins? So we have a lot of basics in the beginning, and then we go into the actual food itself. So there was a whole course on just fruit. So, and just vegetables and just grains and just protein, fats, beverages, dairy. And in each one you will learn, and these are in the books itself. What is the science behind it? Are we doing well? No, you don't need to read the book to find that out. We're not doing very well when it comes to our diet quality. We get a score of 59 on average of how healthy our diets are as Americans. And we spend the least amount of time in the world cooking. So, and why is cooking so valuable? I mean, it really helps us um, lower the playing field. It, it, it saves money and it's really a budget-friendly way to eat a healthy diet. So we put together these books, they're up on Amazon. And then I reached out to the Ruby guys and we talked about creating food coaches which are basically health coaches and a chef training in one. So when a clinician, like a dietitian or a doctor says, you need to do X, Y, Z with your diet, the food coach comes in and shows people how to shop, plan, and cook those foods. So really exciting that for the first time ever, we have these competencies so that people can build the skill. We have enough information. We actually have too much nutrition information and people need to focus on creating healthy food in a craveable way. That's we're so excited to partner with you on this too. So, um, you know, I've been around the industry for a very long time and um, very familiar with food coaching. One of the great things about this course in particular that we're building with you is it's really the marriage of the information, so the nutritional information, but the cooking aspect as well, which I've not seen anything on the market that really does this, which is really fantastic to be able to see both of these really combined in. So, it's a wonderful, um, you know, accompaniment for somebody who might be studying to be a registered dietitian or nutritionist to be able to have this where they're getting the uh, nutrition aspect, but they might not be getting the cooking element as well. So you did a fantastic job of kind of building out these um, other sections where you get the information from the book and then marrying it with the, the Ruby platform to be able to see some of the cooking elements that are coming to this as well. So um, just to kind of further go into the Food Coach Academy, can you break down a little bit of the way it's structured to be able to tell our audience about um, kind of what to expect from the course? And, um, you know, I know we're, we're launching it out to be able to give, I, I love your amuse bouche to be able to talk about just a little bit of a sample of it to be able to get some people interested in it, kind of see. But can you give us a little breakdown of what the Academy is going to look like in, in a whole to be able to, uh, and it's a little hard because it's a, it's a pretty large course too. So, um, but just kind of a small breakdown of what it might look like. Yeah, so it's based on my scientific specialty, which is how 
do people learn and how do they change behaviors? So if you ask someone to eat a healthful diet, you're actually asking them to do over 160, follow 160 def, uh, recommendations. And everyone makes about 200 food choices a day. So in the last 15 years, I've studied this modular approach whereby I take all those recommendations and just have people focus on one thing. So whether that's you're changing your diet and you're focusing on one thing, or you're wanting to be a food coach and you're focusing on one thing. So there are 13 modules in the program and each one has a different topic. The first one's the basics. We have also how to set up your kitchen, taste and flavor, and Within it as well, we have motivational interviewing techniques, and we are building, again, for the first time, how to speak to someone directly using motivational interviewing techniques about their diet. So that's going to be groundbreaking as well. And so you can start where you like, take your time, try a couple, see if you like it. Uh, each one is a standalone, and when you finish the 13, you get to become a certified food coach. And yes, Dan, it, I am hoping that nutritionists and physicians and stay-at-home foodies and health coaches and those who have perhaps family members that are ill that want to know how to feed their family. And so it is very hands-on approach, right? You're going to, the taste buds are going to lead the way. You're going to practice and you're going to experience what you're going to ask the people that you're going to be guiding in their health along the way to do the same. Yeah. I really do love the way that it is set up too, where it's, uh, it's a very kind of train the trainer kind of look and feel to it yes. as well, where it's um, giving you the information that you need to, you need to know to be able to help other people at the same time, which is very unique on the platform too. So great to see that because it's definitely information you could use just for yourself. Um, you know, if you just took the course and you want it just for yourself, that's fantastic. You'll get a wealth of information out of it. And, um, you know, but to be able to go that extra mile to be able to have it where it's specifically designed um, to be able to help other people is just fantastic. And I love that aspect of it. Yeah. And just one more thing I want to say about that is that the ultimate goal is to get to what we call in medicine, the end of the end of the road. So being able to reach people in places we haven't been able to reach them. And uh, if, if I'm doing everything right, we're training food coaches and communities that are already leaders and they're going and teaching their people how to cook well so that it is about everybody's cultural beliefs about their individual palate. And there is no one size fits all. Right. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the certification for this as well, too? I know that you and Randall have been working quite a bit on this as well. Right. Um, just give us a little bit of insight into that. Right. So we're working on having there be various certifications. So the American Culinary Foundation has given us credits for each of the modules as well as the entire course. We are going to be working on some other certifications and the ultimate goal is if I follow food um, health coaching, which I have been doing for a very long time, I'm also certified in value-based medicine, is we're starting to see health coaches be reimbursed for their services. And I'm hoping that with this certification, uh, and insurance companies are already there, they're already 
reimbursing patients for learning how to cook. So I know we're just, we're closer than we were 10 years ago so that there can be some maybe reimbursement. And there are also, there's a lot of nutrition in this. So getting um, credits for your dietetics degree is also something that can happen with this. And there's also some other ones. So stay tuned, like sign up for the newsletter. Things are happening every day and you'll find out other certifications that we're bringing on board. Yeah, that is a good point because one thing to mention is as we're building the courses out, the, uh, you know, the powers that be have to review the right. course to be able to give the certifications for it to make sure that it's valid. So as the courses are being built and they uh, get to see more of it, there'll be more certifications that are added onto it, which is very exciting too. Well, great. So I think I'm going to start in with some of our guests' questions here, because there are a lot of them, and they're all over the place. We have a lot of different kinds of questions for you on this. So I'm going to start um, with this one that I thought was really interesting. Um, this one was actually coming in from Jesse, and uh, um, it's specifically is, uh, what is the most exciting scientifically founded news breakthrough um, for you on the topic of food as medicine. So along with kind of one of, what have you learned in this aspect too? So uh, we'll start with that one um, and continue okay. from there. Well, thank you, Jesse. That's a really great question. And it's one I love talking about because having taken a deep dive into the science of culinary medicine, it's still in its infancy. But the thing that was loud and clear is that it does not take perfection to create health in your body. So this, I have to be hundred percent perfect, or there's no room in my diet for foods that I already like. One change, one small step. I think of health as a journey and you're making these steps every day. And if you can go towards health more times than you go away from health with your choices, whether that's diet or other choices that you have in your life, like activity, the closer to health you will become. And the science shows that adding one vegetable a day has metabolic consequences. It does have an effect on your body. And I think that that is really an message that everybody needs to hear because what was called culinary medicine is still being called culinary medicine. And you're seeing a lot of that with the hospital clinics and NIH, National Institutes of Health just came out with uh, food is medicine, right? And so what I want to scream at, this isn't like prescribing a medication. This isn't, you have to get it right to the nth degree. This is having a balanced diet. And I would love to say, but I knew I wasn't gonna say it because I've been in the field for over 35 years. There is no magic one ingredient. There is listening to your body about what works for you and doesn't. And a diet, I know you're gonna hear me, you're gonna turn off because everybody does. High in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, healthy sources of protein and healthy sources of fat is really what it all boils down to. It will always boil down to that. And what we're doing with Ruby's and make sure that it's so craveable, you won't even notice. <laughs> yeah, that's something we uh, strive for at, uh, at Ruby with our courses is really making people not even notice that they're eating healthy. It's, it's, it's a wonderful yes. thing to be able to have just great taste and flavor um, for everybody that kind of jumps into this field. 
um, because we don't want people left out, right? Uh, so, you know, making all these foods just really approachable, easy to do at home as well, I think is a big thing that we do in this course too, to make sure that you don't have to have a bunch of fancy stuff to be able to make your meals, um, that it's just something that's easily executable at home. So um, thank you for the answer on that. And Jesse, I hope you liked uh, the answer on that because I definitely did. So um, here's another great one from Sarah, and this is around um, inflammation in food, which I've heard of a lot of different things. So um, Sarah's asking, what are the top three food items uh, or style of cooking, which is a little harder, but probably let's just stick with food items um, of cooking to reduce inflammation. So that's, a, that's an excellent question because almost every disease that we get is set up by inflammation. So making sure that you are not inflamed is a really good thing to keep your eye on. So when it comes to inflammation, I think of it in two ways, both what should be added to your diet and perhaps what should be removed from your diet. So practicing for decades, I have often found that people that have an inflammatory response that is exaggerated um, are usually reacting to a food ingredient that they've either always been allergic to or sensitive to, and I'm not going to get into the, the differences between allergy and sensitivity, but for a lot, it's either dairy or it's gluten or it's wheat, or it could be some other type of food allergy, but usually those show up really quick right after you consume the food. These that are more subtle, you might have something and then three days later, you're feeling really bad kind of thing. So what's been shown to help with decreasing inflammation is the Mediterranean diet. And the reason for that is it's high in fruits and vegetables and whole grains. You want to make sure that your colon's working right and you're like um, pooping every day, I like to say, because you need to make sure you're getting, getting a lot of fiber and you're getting those toxins out of your system. Um, the essential fatty acids like omega-3s are also really important. So having some fish or some flax seeds in your diet are also really good. And not having a lot of saturated fats, which are the fats that are solid at room temperature. So avoiding ultra processed foods and processed foods as much as you can and sticking to ingredients that you can pronounce and understand and actually buy. So that would be my number one advice for someone with inflammation. And usually the only way that I've seen over many years to tell if you are reacting to a food is to remove that one food from your diet for a couple of weeks and see how you feel and then reintroduce it and see if it, it flares something and then see a nutritionist or dietitian about it. That's great. So that's interesting. You mentioned the Mediterranean diet for styles as well. When I, when I first saw the question and, um, I actually went right to Ayurvedic cooking as kind of one of those styles because a lot of the spices that they use are anti-inflammatory as well, too. So um, you yes. know, there are a lot of different diets, but you can combine and get those, you know, use those spices in all kinds of cuisine, too. So it's a wonderful thing just to kind of point out that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a specific cuisine. It's just specific ingredients. And I think you're right on point where... Um, usually you're going to find out right away if something's inflammatory. Um, you know, gluten has been one of those things where a lot of people will instantly feel when they're eating gluten, they'll get that gut bomb or their belly will swell right away where it's a little easier. But some some things are a little harder to be able to find and kind of, you know, reducing things out, I think, is a great place to be able to start with that. 
Our next question is from Demetra, and um, she's asking, please share the best foods for bone health, especially for women. So that would be your foods that are high in calcium, magnesium, boron, zinc. So dark leafy greens are super helpful um, for building bone health, as are dairy products if you can handle them. If you can't, then, and you're using a plant-based ingredient, you would want to make sure it's fortified with calcium as well. The, the bone health has a lot to do with, again, what's going in and what's not going in. So making sure you're not leaching calcium from your bone with um, drinking like a lot of carbonated beverages, sodas, that kind of thing, because that will take it out. Um, working with kids for many years, I, I always teach them that there's just so much calcium that you can store in your bones. And about the age of like 22-ish, your bones close up. There's no more deposits. There's only taking things out of the bone, <laughs> taking the calcium out of the bones. So you want to make sure that you're not in a deficit. So really making sure that you keep track of that. For people that have like more severe, then they need to see a clinician about going on some certain types of medication and, um, and, and also making sure that they're getting enough calcium in their diet, which comes from vegetables as, as well as it does from dairy products. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful to be able to have so many varieties to be able to choose from, to be able to get your calcium from those. Um, so this next one is a great one too. This is from Jesse as well. So Dr. Deb Kennedy, would you, uh, what would you estimate as your personal success rate for assisting eating, eating pattern changes to take advantages of foods as medicine for long-term cures of disease? And which diseases have your patients overcome in a time frame? So that's a big question. If you need me to repeat it, I will, because there's a lot. No, that's, that is, um, a very scientific question. Uh, so I can just say I've been working for 35 years and I've seen a heck of a lot. Um, have a lot of success with uh, people with just generalized, and I, this explains a lot of women, very few men, but a lot of women, brain fog, achy joints, um, their stomach gets really distended after they eat. Just these like symptoms that don't point to any one disease. Uh, I have done a lot of success with that. The success of the patient, however, is up to them. So I will tell you, when I walk in a room, what I usually get, because we're all really super smart, don't tell me I have to get off dairy because I'm not going to do it. And I know it doesn't agree with me and I can't take that away from me kind of thing, right? So then it's just starting where the person's at. So I wouldn't take dairy away from them right away. And I'm not the one taking dairy, it's their choice. But I have to say that it's not so much, again, it's not the information. I can give people the correct information, whether or not they wanna make a complete dietary change is really up to them, which is why the modular approach is really, really effective. Um, and there is research to support that. I did research with Yale, Tufts, Dartmouth, and, and we showed that BMI improved, as did attitude, behavior, and ease of following a healthful diet when you focus on just one small thing at a time. So the other reason I added motivational interviewing as a foundational element of the Food Coach Academy is because 
the, the client, the person, the patient, whatever you want to call them is really the expert in their own life. And only they know what they're up against. And so the 10 minutes they see a clinician or the hour they might see a dietitian isn't enough time to really understand what their life is like. And so when I set up the um, weight and wellness center at Dartmouth Hitchcock, I got everyone trained in weight in uh, motivational interviewing because I really think the patient is the expert in their own life and the success there where people started to cry because usually when they would go into a clinician's office, they would be told what they're doing wrong and not doing right. And you don't know, like the, I do this special kind of needs assessment called um, experience groups. And one reason might be they don't have a refrigerator that works or they don't have access to healthy food. So I cannot answer that question won't give you an accurate representation of the science behind what I do and the art. It's, it's a lot of art. It's really just connecting with that person because I believe that food is the ultimate connector. It's what connects us to ourselves, each other and our planet based on our decisions. And so once you have that connection with somebody, then that's what I really feel most people are craving. And then we start really to go to work. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, on that same note, I am getting a lot of questions from some of our viewers that are hyper-specific about their own conditions. And I do just want to put a caveat into that to talk about that um, we can't go into specific, uh, you know, answers for specific, like your, you know, if you're having a problem with something on that. Um, I don't know if you want to expand upon that, um, Dr. Deb, um, but the... Sure. We, we want to be able to keep our questions a little more general than hyper-specific on your, you know, but I'll let you expand on that. Right. And I, I'm going to start by saying I get that. I get the need to have a solution because you've probably been trying everything under the sun that you know, and you just want that one, that one thing. And when I had survived this incurable cancer, uh, that's the first question people always ask me, what did you do? And I would say to them, this is my journey. And there were a lot of things I had to do. And, and it's really listening to your own body in terms of what you need and don't need. And really rarely, I mean, there was, I got a call from Peru once and there was this family and they all, the kids were born blind and they needed a special kind of folate. Right. But in 35 years, that's the only like time there was something that was that ultra specific. So if you're wondering, how do I cure prostate cancer? Or how do I, I I'm trying to think of other ones, the other questions that I read, but let's attend to that one. So what I usually tell people is the 80-20 rule, 80% 80 of the time going down on that path towards health, but there is room for, for things that you, you absolutely love. However, that fraction does, that ratio does lessen when you have a severe illness because what you do for prevention is not what you're doing for treatment. And so when I was in my treatment, there was very little room for the sugar products that I love and crave. Um, and it was really about getting as many nutrients into myself as I could did a lot of juicing and things like that, um, especially when I was weakened with chemotherapy and things like that. And there are specific individuals that can actually go through and tell you what it is you should follow. 
There is no general rule. If there was a room of 10 people with breast cancer, there's 10 different reasons they developed it and 10 treatments that are going to work for them that are different. Um, there's the overarching one, but unless you can, in my opinion, go from externally wanting somebody to tell you what's right to internally hearing what other people have to say, like your clinicians, your dietitians, and your friends and family members, because everybody knows one thing that's going to cure all cancer. And then listening to yourself and trying to figure out what, what, what's resonating with me. And so some things resonated with me and I followed those. Um, wouldn't necessarily work for someone else with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's, it's amazing how you can even have some like siblings who have grown up in the same household and, um, you know, just they, their systems can be completely different, um, you know, even twins, um, to be able to see how that can happen. Um, and you really have to listen to your body to be able to help um, heal it at the same time, too. Our next question here is from Latanya, um, and she's asking, can, can I reverse my high blood pressure with food? The data says absolutely, absolutely. Just talk to Dean Ornish. He's done a ton of studies on that. Um, and so there's, there is a chapter in the book on the DASH diet, which is the diet for actually reducing high blood pressure. And even as a trained nutritionist, I always thought sodium was the thing that caused the high blood pressure more than anything. But really what we're finding out, it's more about potassium and it's having more potassium than sodium. Sodium does improve it. So they've done studies where you go on the DASH diet and then you go on the DASH diet and you watch your sodium. Um, and just going on the DASH diet without any decrease in your sodium levels has been shown to decrease blood pressure. And where do you get your potassium, your fruits and your vegetables? Um, so having a diet that's more plant-based is going to be beneficial for lowering your blood pressure. And if you are a salt sensitive individual, um, some people are, not everybody is salt sensitive, they, then you would need to decrease the amount of sodium in your diet. But what I really think is it's not coming from the salt shaker when you look at the data, where it's really coming from is the processed foods. So it really is another sign that the more whole foods, plant-based that you get into your diet, the better off you are in terms of blood pressure and a host of other things. And that it really is a mirror and a representation salt is for the amount of ultra processed and processed foods that we eat. Yeah. And there's so much, so much added in those highly processed food and then so much taken away as far as nutrients goes, you know, it's, it's pretty right. amazing those things. So I think you, your rule on following a whole food plant-based diet is really the best way to be able to help cure a lot of different um, ailments in the body. Our next one is from Shar Nolan, who is a, a Ruby uh, employee, does a lot of our social as well and near and dear to my heart. And she's asking who, um, she does a lot of our uh, social media as well. And she's asking who are some of the plant-based influencers who uh, have had an impact on your practice? Um, which is a great question because there's so many out there and so many different people have uh, fun things or, you know, things you can follow in nutrition, um, just a, a wide variety of different influencers out there. So do you have any that you follow or like? I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, but but um, 
So, and this is where it gets tricky, right? So, and you have to be careful. So I'll give you a statistic. 3% of Americans identify as being vegan, 5% identify as being vegetarian. So if, if the person that I'm following, and a lot of them are, and if you look at the Eat Lancet report, which came out and basically said in a nutshell, if you don't stop eating meat, the planet's going to die and you're going to die. Okay, that's just paraphrased, right? Like it's not good for your health and it's not good for the health of the planet. So you take all that in and that didn't budge people. I, I thought, oh, that'll make a lot of people stop eating meat. Mm -mm. But when you look at the data, what you see is that almost 50% of individuals identify as wanting to add more plants into their diet. So the Culinary Institute of America came up with this term plant forward diet as opposed to plant based. And what that means is that you add more plant based foods into your diet. And you, and then I add on to it and you decide when you've had enough, because if I tell someone they have to be total vegetarians or vegans, I am setting them up for failure. I am asking them to give up everything that they know all at once and follow a diet that I know from statistics, very few are going to be able to sustain that, that type of eating. Is a vegetarian diet and vegan diet healthy for you? Absolutely. But can you also add some meat to your diet and stay healthy? Yes, you can. So I, I purposely don't, I, I go everywhere looking for recipes, right? I'm everywhere looking for recipes, but I am not, and it, there's nothing wrong with following someone who speaks to your heart. And that's what I'm all about, right? It was what I said before. If you find someone you really love, follow them. Absolutely. I, I don't want to set people up for failure. So my, the way I practice is I'm going to give you the information. I'm going to teach you how to cook it really, really well. And you're going to decide, and I'm going to ask you to increase little bits, little baby steps. And then you decide how far you want to go. If you don't need to go or don't want to go all the way, you know what? That's fine. So. So yeah. let me ask you this too, because there's, um, there's not a whole lot uh just reviewing from what I've seen in the courses so far, there's not a lot of uh, meat products in it at all. Um, are there, uh, are you, just to follow up on that question, are there social aspects that you've seen that have influenced your practice that even aren't plant-based to be like, oh, this is a great technique or we should do more of this in our lives or? Um, yeah. Oh, like there's, there's the definitely been leaders that have changed the way, um, yeah, Christopher Gardner at Stanford would he when he told me that he had been teaching his uh, students. Um, he teaches at Stanford University, California, whatever whatever that one's called, and he was trying to get them to change their diet for years, and he couldn't do it. He just no matter how much he taught them or whatever. But when he did what he calls the stealth approach, which is teach them behind the scenes. So we had them watch like Food Inc. Or what What do, if you're buying cow meat, what? how are they being treated and watching those videos and watching how are how many chickens are in one of those coops and all of that, that got them to change their diet. So it really is, again, a central part, this nourishing part and this belief of what you, the individual believes in, whether that's, I want to follow an organic diet or sustainable diet. There's so many terms out there, but 
that really changed me. It changed the trajectory of my practice where in the beginning, yes, that's how we were all trained. You need to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? And then report back to me in two weeks, however you were doing. Oh, you did good on this. Mm, you could do that. And uh, so that was one, one major thing. Uh, the plant forward protein flip concept is a game changer. So no, there's not a lot of meat in the course. It's under protein. One of the 13 is about meat, uh, animal sources of meat. And you're going to learn how to cook with animal sources of meat um, and how, how, what are healthy ways to do it. But it's going to be a condiment on your plate. It's not going to be a six ounce steak, right? It might be one or two ounces. And so that's how I eat. And that's how I train individuals to eat. So you can still have what you want, but have the focus be on plant-based again, plant forward. Uh, does that answer your question? That does. That's great. And I know that there's also an emphasis on uh, plant-based proteins as well, which is great. Oh, for to. sure. Plant-based proteins. Yeah. Cause I think there was a question about, you know, me teaching kids and on the Build Healthy Kids site, you know, talking about meat. Uh, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're working with kids, and I have done that, that was my, you know, I've written several books on that, on picky eating and, and how, to, you know, how to get kids off of sugar and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can absolutely bring up a child to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and they can be completely healthy. Uh, I've met many parents that A, wanted to do that. Usually the kid went to school, found out something and how they're treating the animal and said, I'm not eating that ever again. It's usually the opposite. The parent says to me, oh my goodness, Junior won't eat this anymore. Uh, but when you can add plant-based proteins into the mix, that is great. And I always tell the kids, right? So protein can come with good friends or bullies, right? And so with the good friends, it's the phytonutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that come with the plant-based protein. Whereas with the animal base, you got the saturated fat behind there and sometimes, you know, salt if they're processed as well. And those aren't good for us. So protein's not the bad thing. It's no. what comes along with it. Right. That's funny that you brought up the sugar addictions for kids because that's actually our next question here from Jesse is what are the top suggestions for getting off and staying off of sugar addictions, especially for children? Yeah, there's a whole book on that and I wrote it, but it's called, uh, yeah, there, there's no, but seriously, I, so I've spent a lot of time researching and teaching about feeding kids. And I always say they don't show up to the table with a different personality, you know, it, and so there are different eating personalities and temperaments that kids have. So there is no one solution. How, and so I take it in baby steps. So, and, and this is all written in beet sugar addiction now for kids or the picky eating solution to find out how to work with your individual child. Because first and foremost, you want to make sure they're not on the spectrum. They're not neurodivergent because then you're dealing with something that you need professional help. Um, kids learn to like sugar uh, when they're, they're offered it to them. So usually when they get out of the house and they see that all their other little friends are having a lot of it. I definitely am a big proponent in unique our stomachs have just a certain amount of room and you need to fill it with the healthy stuff first before you can have the stuff that doesn't promote health, but is super tasty. Um, and I differ with traditional dietitians like in the eighties um, that were really, you know, put all the food in front of your kids and they decide what to eat. That only works with one eating personality. 
that does not work with the other eight that um, are in this book. But if you have somebody who can do that, absolutely. I don't know many adults that would choose broccoli over something sweet. And so I break the sugar addiction up into different parts based on, so you, most people get most of their sugar uh, from sugar sweetened beverages. And then, you know, then you have your treats and then you have stuff that's added to food. So you find out where your child is at the moment. Maybe they're drinking three things of juice a day or 13, they're having five things of soda. So you set up a plan with them and they can get stickers or something else, depending on how old they are. And you just ask them to make one small change per week. So I would say we're going to, you know, decrease the amount of juice by half a cup a week and, and just these small changes and then get rewarded. That is the best way to have children change their eating habits and they can't see and modeling's always there, right? So if mom and dad or, you know, whoever is bringing them up is eating a ton of sugar, that speaks volumes. That's what they're going to do too. Yeah, I absolutely believe that too. I used to run a program um, through Whole Kids Foundation was giving uh, teachers best practices in nutrition so they could be better examples through food. Because if you're talking mm -hmm. to a kid about nutrition and you show up at the school with your Coke and a candy bar on your desk, your lesson just completely goes out the window. You have to be the example at the same time too. Um, our next question here is from Blanca and uh, here's, here's a great one is, what do you think about bread as a health food? I love bread and wonder if it has its own health benefits. So I guess that depends on the type of bread, but I'll let you expand upon that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, bread, depends what kind of bread now. Uh, the whole grain bread Oh, it's chock full of vitamins and minerals and even some healthy fats. Uh, but those are found in parts of the grain that are taken away when they're processed. So you want to make sure that you're getting a lot of fiber in the bread that you're eating. And there, you know, there's many improvements that are happening in terms of creating different types of wheat that are high in fiber, but don't necessarily have that texture that people might um, want to avoid. But we are less than 10% of Americans get enough fiber in their diet. So bread is an essential, if you can handle bread, for instance, I'm gluten intolerant. So I miss it on a daily basis. I have my gluten-free breads, um, but they, they don't pack the punch that, you know, regular bread does because it's usually really, really low in fiber. The grains that are used in gluten-free bread. So I just need to make a pitch here because I brought up gluten-free. Gluten-free diet is not a healthy diet unless you really are allergic or sensitive to gluten. And one of the reasons for that is it's really, really low in fiber. And when we did this work with the culinary medicine textbook. Fiber is an essential, essential element for both feeding ourselves and the trillions of little bugs in our intestines that really promote health, the microbiome. That was the other thing that came out of this culinary medicine project. And that's the new frontier. We know very little. We haven't even gotten to the tip of the iceberg on how to, how to benefit our microbiome. But it's, it's feed, it, and they, those little guys feed on 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 healthy foods like grain bread with a lot of grain in it 
Yeah, that's so true. So um, here's one that's a little different from that. And you're, you're making my stomach kind of rumble a little bit talking about that. But um, uh, this is from Kathy. And um, she had just attended a phenomenal weekend at the International Conference of Nutrition and Medicine. And she's asking, are you familiar with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and NutritionFacts.org? Which, and Dr. I am. I am familiar with them. And yeah, it's a, yeah. Um, and they, so I started my career in the field of complementary alternative medicine and, and, you know, they were supporters of us back in the day. And, and now when it comes to culinary medicine, absolutely. Uh, I, when you look at the research, I'm going to talk about clinicians now, uh, being leaders now in culinary medicine because it's called medicine. And so anything that's called medicine clinicians get involved with, what we're finding is that when they practice culinary medicine, their diets get better and they're better able to uh, work with their patients in terms of advising them on dietary changes. So that's really important to have the clinician be educated on the benefits again of diet because most of them get about four hours of nutrition education right in their training so i think it's wonderful one the one of the reasons the food coach academy was developed is that um it needs to go into the hands of other individuals as well there needs to be a, a tribe of food coaches that are getting to all these places when you physicians don't have a lot of time to counsel their patients on preventative medicine and what we've seen through the years is that what docs used to do, nurses are now doing, and what nurses used to do, health coaches are now doing because they're asking everybody in the medical field to work at the top of their license. And this might be getting a little off topic, but, but what's happening is there isn't enough, um, there isn't, <laughs> sorry, my kid just walked by. Sorry, I got distracted people. You know, there isn't enough information and anything we can give to our clinicians to help them personally as well as help their patients is a really positive thing and if they want to get involved in culinary medicine have them reach out to me <laughs> that's fantastic yeah, i remember when um both those organizations were first starting out and it was just really great to see the progression of that especially with dr gregor um and really kind of see all oh, the, the fun gregor, information like, that yeah I love his approach to where it's just, it's very approachable at the same time. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've laughed at presentations that he's like, he's a funny guy at the same time. And just the way he talks about nutrition um, is just fantastic. And uh, I love that he's, um, you know, people really know him and he's becoming a household name now, which is fantastic. Um, so look him up if you're uh, watching and you've never heard of Dr. Michael Greger, definitely check out some of his books and some of his lectures. Um, all right, so our next question here is from Fran. Hi, Dr. Deb. I've heard of a significant number number of people that wheat in, in small European pounds does, or towns does not bother them in the way it does in the U.S. I'd like to know what you think. Yeah, I dove deep into that. I dove deep into that question um, in the chapter on grains. So, what we've seen an increase in is the amount of gluten consumption. And there is less gluten, the amount of gluten, the protein that people are reacting to in products that are grown in Europe um, and what we can also access here. So it, I have to go back. There is a specific 
measurement. It's not the overall gluten, but it's, it's a specific measurement that's gone up tenfold, if not a hundredfold. And so we're, we're eating so much of it that that's one of the reasons they postulate a lot of individuals are becoming sensitive to gluten. But I know of a lot of individuals who, when they're in Europe, can handle the wheat that's, that's there. Um, there are other aspects to the wheat too, um, whether or not, you know, what the other elements that it was grown with. I'm, I'm speaking of pesticides and things like that, but people might, they might be getting something that's not as, it's not grown that way. So yes, there is that. And it's not so much the total amount of gluten, although we are eating more gluten. And I can get back to you on that specific um, measurement. It's really interesting to see, um, because I've heard this a lot too. And when I was traveling through Italy, found a lot of pasta makers that were making that claim and kind of dove into it a little bit more. And it's it's really interesting because in the United States, there, uh, we get a lot of the same grain, right? Where mm -hmm. um, if you look historically at grains of wheat um, and you do a little bit of research on heirloom varieties, you'll see that uh, they can kind of vary off in the wide variety. So you're actually getting different kinds of nutrients, different proteins from it. Um, and the amount of gluten is quite different too. So, um, you know, because a lot of the, uh, the gluten or a lot of the, you know, wheat that we're getting in, in America is specifically one type and it's processed a certain way. Um, you know, it's, I think that that might have something to do with it as well too, but I think you put that pretty well in there. So I'm going to give you an easy one here. <laughs> well, I just want to say, I absolutely agree with yeah, you, sure. right? It's, it's when we eat something and we eat a lot of it and we don't have diversity problems happen. Yeah, exactly. The, the more variety I think is always the best. So I'll give you an easy one here. This one's from Michael. What's the difference between a nutrition, a nutritionist and a dietitian? Oh, Michael, that's a question that makes me want to cry. <laughs> so, no, it, it, so dietitians are certified and they are the ones that are allowed to be reimbursed by insurance. They are the ones that work in hospitals and... They've gone through rigorous training, um, both on the job training as well as in classroom. With nutritionists, there is no one certification for nutritionist. So I can be a nutritionist if I took, a, if I just said I'm one, right? I know what nutrition's like, or if I took a 10 hour class to the other extreme where you got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry and you've been working for 35 years and, and uh, you know what you're doing, right? Um, so certified nutritional specialist is a, is if you want to find a nutritionist that has credibility behind their name, that is something that was developed to try and, to try and level the playing field in terms of um, recognizing those that really have the credibility versus those that just put up a sign and say that they're a nutritionist. That is the difference. And so you got to be a buyer beware. 
that's that's a great way to be able to put that. So um, I see we have about eight minutes left here. So I'm going to try to get through some of these questions as well. Um, and if we don't get to your question today, uh, we will have them on record and I'll send them to Deborah so she can answer them. Um, probably not today, but in time, she'll probably be able to get through them and help to answer some of those too. I also want to remind you that we're also doing another follow-up for this too, where Dr. Deb will be on her own on September 26th. So definitely tune in um, if you have other questions, because I know some of these questions are just going to start you know, uh, forming other questions in your head as you're watching too. So definitely ch um, chime in on September 26th to be able to see a follow-up conversation with this as well too. I'm gonna go on to our next question. Um, and this one is from Barbara. Barbara is asking, is a vegan diet the ideal diet for someone with metastatic prostate cancer? And what is the percentage of carbs, fat, and protein should I look for? So that was a question from Barbara. That's a very specific question, Barbara, that you should talk to a dietitian about, right? So you're talking about really prescribing a diet. Um, so is a vegan diet, it, it depends on the person. So I can give you, I got myself into uh, the Macrobiotic Institute after I was told that I, you know, there was no cure for my cancer and I couldn't stay there. I actually had to get myself out of there after a couple of days because I couldn't do it. No matter what, how hard I tried, I couldn't follow a vegan diet. It didn't work with my body. In that same macrobiotic institute, there were people that looked like they were thriving and you know, people with brain cancer and, and other forms of cancer that looked like the epitome of health. And there were others that looked like they hadn't eaten in about a hundred years, um, sunken eyeballs. Your body is always going to be the best, best answer, give you the best answer that you could ever, ever get. Uh, the more plants in your diet, absolutely. Do you have to go as far as becoming a vegan? I'm not sure. Uh, that would take a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody who, who works in the field of oncology and is also um, either a CNS or a dietitian that can, can answer that question. You will not go wrong adding more fruits and vegetables to your diet. And I can tell you that with prostate cancer, there's a lot of science about certain foods that help um, with that specific cancer. Yeah. Um, but that is something you do want to specifically look for um, some yeah. local advice for yourself there, Barbara. So thanks for answering that the way you did, Deborah. Um, this next one is from Jesse, uh, is what is tofu? Uh, is tofu too processed to retain its whole food nutrient benefits? So basically tofu is taking the edamame, the soybean and, and processing it, but it's not considered what we call this ultra processed food. And soy, when we're looking at the science of isoflavones, which are like the superpowers in, in soybeans, we, tofu has, has the isoflavones in there. Um, but as, usually happens in developed countries. If something's good in a food, let's put it into a supplement and make um, it be really, really high in these components. And one is food and then one turns to medicine that again needs somebody who's knowledgeable to let you know. So for anybody who has like estrogen positive breast cancer, they're going to stay away from the supplements, but they can still consume two to three servings of of soy a week. And all right, so 25 years ago, I couldn't answer that question. I was working in oncology at Columbia Presbyterian and we didn't know. And people were told, oh no, you have to stay away from all soy products. 
And then we look at Asia and we see that there's less breast cancer there. And we're like, okay, that doesn't seem to fit. And so they've done a lot of research on that. So soy tofu is, is, I would say, processed like hamburger meat is processed from beef and not like what you see when you get ingredients that you can turn into different types of meat products based on the same ultra processed thing. Okay, great. Um, this is going to be our last question for the day, but again, we will uh, have another event coming up soon and we'll email all these questions to Dr. Deb as well. Um, but this one is from Jesse as well. Um, what are the causes for bloating associated with food? What is actually happening in the body? Okay. Gas and a lot of it, right? Um, a lot, a lot of gas. I'm sure you've, or maybe you haven't, but some of us have heard of the FODMAP diet, which uh, is a diet that takes out a lot of gas producing foods. Uh, this is used for people that might have small intestinal bowel overgrowth called SIBO. But again, whether someone's reacting to gluten in their diet or dairy in their diet, or some of these oligofructosaccharides, you know, the, the, um, is unknown. So it really takes, um, either you doing, taking one thing out of your diet at a time, like something major, like dairy, seeing if that improves or gluten and seeing if that improves and then seeing somebody about going on a FODMAP diet. Um, it's, it's pretty strict. Um, as so you do need support when you do try that. Um, but it's, and if it's been going on for a long time, you also need to check with your practitioner. There might be something else going on there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Deborah. Um, it's been fantastic. And uh, we've all learned a lot more about nutrition. Um, let's talk about the course just a little bit more as our outro. Uh, when can we expect uh, the, the Academy and uh, the first course launch? When are, when are we looking at those? Yeah, so the first course launch is going to be in September. Again, um, sign up, let us know. We're going to be putting it all on social media. Sometime in September, you're going to be able to take taste and flavor. And then starting in January, we are releasing a whole bunch of those modules um, to start the Food Coach Academy as of January 2024. So very soon. <clears throat> And where can uh, one sign up for that to be able to be a part of it? And where can we find more information on you? So I believe um, that you're going to put in the chat the link for the Food Coach Academy landing page, as well as you can always go to drdebkennedy.com. And there you'll find a lot of information. You can sign up. I'll keep you informed about all of that. So it's drdebkennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y.com. Yep. Right underneath this video, you can see under learn more. We'll have that link in there too. Well, again, thank you again for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. And I'm sure all of our viewers think the same thing. We can't wait to see you again on September 26th for a follow-up conversation um, and to see you more regularly at Ruby. So welcome and uh, glad to have you here, Dr. Deb. Thank you, Dan. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and all of your listeners and um, choose healthy, delicious food. Fantastic.
fantastic. Well, have a great day, everybody. We'll see you for our next live event soon.